You're listening to Christ-Centered Preaching, Preparation and Delivery of Sermons. Lesson 7. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. For your midterm review questions, what is a proposition? And there I'm looking for a statement of the subject as the preacher proposes to develop it. That's the classic definition. And then we add to that, in light of a falling condition focus. And we add to that, in the terms of the introduction. What components are wed in, and we probably have to add the word a formal, what components are wed in formal main points and propositions? Here I'm looking for, there could actually be a number of answers. Universal truth and application, that could be one. Universal truth and exhortation. Another way of saying it would be principle and application. Or the most basic of all, what is true and what to do. Exactly. What is true and what to do. So principle and application, or classic terminology, universal truth and exhortation would be that classic terminology. But I'm, any of those answers will do if you recognize there's a combination of what is true and what to do about it. Because that's what the sermon itself ultimately is about. What two basic uh, forms do we have for main point wording? And there I'm looking for conditional and consequential. If it's, if it's consequential, what's the key term that will appear? Because. If it's conditional, what key term will appear? Since or if, sure. How do anchor clauses and magnet clauses differ in main points? How do anchor clauses and magnet clauses differ? The anchor clause stays the same, right? Anchor clause stays the same. Magnet clause changes. What specifically changes in it? Key terms. The key terms change. So they're drawing attention. That's why it's the magnet clause. They draw the attention of the exposition because the key terms are what change. Everything else stays parallel, but the key terms change in the magnet clause. What's a coexistent point? And why should it be avoided? What is it when it's coexistent? It's too much, too much the same. Exactly. It's too much. So you have a main point that's too much like another main point or the proposition, right? A main point that's too much like another main point or the proposition. It may be too much alike in terminology, in wording. What's another way? The wording might be different, but what could still be the same? The concept. That's right. So it's not just different in wording. It should be different in concept. Classically, this occurs when you simply word something in the negative. We should not do something. We should do something. You kind of go, well, actually, even though you word it in the negative, it's the same thing over again. So one of the things that we uh, are doing just to avoid that problem, too, is we're not doing nots this semester, at least in the way that we word main points and propositions. Not on your list, but sometimes appears on midterms is what's the double pronoun error? What's the double pronoun error? And that is where you have a pronoun whose antecedent is another pronoun. It's where you have an antecedent, a pronoun whose antecedent is another pronoun. 
Some of you have been uh, tracking with me because some of you know uh, the situation and pastor, and some of you are just aware of me. My uh, friend who um, left the suicide notes as a pastor has been found, uh, and uh, his uh, body was found uh, two days ago. So I was out, when I was out of town from you, I received the call about that. So we'll uh, talk a little bit more and pray about that a little bit more in chapel. Let me, uh, if I could, just ask you to join me in the Lord's Prayer this morning. Would you repeat that with me, please? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. For today, you see that we are talking about introductions, introductions to sermons. And the goal for this lesson is to understand the basic purposes, marks, and construction elements of good sermon introductions. Here is one that I'd just like to ask you to to listen to, and then we'll begin to think about its components. The words were too close for comfort. Had Mickey Mantle not asked that these words be sung at his own funeral, we would have thought them too candid to be appropriate. This is what the legendary Mickey Mantle asked to be sung at his funeral. Yesterday, when I was young, the taste of life was sweet as rain upon my tongue. I lived by night and shunned the naked light of day, and only now I see how the years ran away. I used my magic age as if it were a wand, and I never saw the pain and the emptiness beyond. The game of life I played with arrogance and pride, and every flame I lit too quickly, quickly died. Yesterday when I was young, so many drinking songs were waiting to be sung. So many wayward pleasures lay in store for me. And so much pain, my dazzled eyes refused to see. I ran so fast that time and youth at last ran out. And now the time has come to pay for yesterday when I was young. So much swirled around Mickey Mantle that promised happiness, that promised satisfaction in this life. Physical ability, fame, wealth, worldly pleasure, the bottle formal religion, each in its turn offered what it could. Each time, Mickey Mantle grabbed for all the joy he could, and each time he came up empty. 
We understand, don't we? We understand how enticing are the world's promises of satisfaction. But sometimes we forget how empty those promises are. The writer of Ecclesiastes responds and tells us in plain terms, because the promises of this world are empty, we must find our satisfaction in God alone. I want you to think of some of the things that are occurring in that actual sermon introduction from a sermon I preached a few years ago. And think of what's happening, what is occurring. There is an attempt anyway to get people's attention by speaking of particulars. Even the opening words are meant to stand alone to arouse attention. The words were too close for comfort. Now, what we can do in introductions is begin to write English essays and say, sometimes life is complicated and we think that and do some kind of big overarching thing. Sermon introductions don't do that. They invert the pyramid. We start with the particular. What is some particular thing that you can say out of the account that would make it gripping from the beginning? The words were too close for comfort. These are the words that Mickey Mantle asked to be sung at his own funeral. That's a part of the beginning. We are also preparing in concept and terminology for the proposition. Now, the proposition, remember, was because the promises of this world are empty. Did you hear anything about promises of this world in the introduction? What was promising happiness? Physicality, wealth, fame, the bottle, pleasure, all those promising, but Mickey Mantle came up what? Empty got key words that are beginning to beacon already. Promises of this world coming up empty because they are not providing what? Satisfaction. So the key words that are going to be in the proposition are occurring within the introduction itself. It's not just preparing conceptually. It is preparing the ear. So the ear is hearing key terms so that when the proposition finally occurs, it just sticks out. We know that's the point now because we've heard those key words beaconing. And so when they finally are put together, we recognize that's the point of the whole message. The introduction has gotten us ready. One other piece, I didn't just say there's an answer for this somewhere. I said the writer of what? The writer of Ecclesiastes addresses that. That's known as a scripture bond. A proposition, excuse me, an introduction is doing all of these things. It's getting us ready in concept and terminology. It's identifying a problem. It's preparing us for the proposition, but it's also bonding to Scripture. It's telling me the answer is someplace in the Scriptures. And now that you've heard those things, let's begin to particularize and say how we will develop our own introductions. Because your goal for the next class is to look at the passage that you've been working on so far and now to develop introductions. So we're taking the next step in putting our sermon together. Here are the basic purposes of introductions. There are four of these. The basic purposes of introductions first is to arouse attention. This is important. You must listen to me. This has something to do with your life. Arouse attention is the first goal. Second, to introduce the subject. Not only am I trying to get attention, I'm saying this is what we will be talking about. To introduce the subject. 
Number three, and the most important of the things that I will say to you, is it is seeking to identify the FCF. The introduction is seeking to identify the FCF. It is not just saying what the subject is. It is given the reason that we are looking at the subject. This is where you take one of those key elements and say this is converting a lecture to a sermon. I'm not just saying I'm going to talk today about the history of Israel. You're not just even saying today we're going to talk about the fall of Jericho. I have to say why you must listen. What does this have to do with you? So when you are identifying the FCF, you are identifying the burden of the sermon. What is wrong that requires this subject to be dealt with? What is wrong in whose life? The listener's life. It's important that you recognize that. It's not just what was wrong in the life of the biblical people. Nor is it something that is simply wrong in the preacher's life. Okay? When it's identifiable, it's not simply my identification. It is phrased in such a way that we have identified what is wrong in the listeners' lives so that they now must listen to what this sermon will be about. The tendency, sadly the great temptation of training to preach in an academic setting, is we become great at giving sermons without reasons. Okay? Here's simply information for you to know. Whereas what is so important, you know, that, that typical, you have to listen to this man. You have to listen to this man. And he has said right from the beginning, here's why you must listen to this information. Here's what it will have to do with your life. So it is identifying an FCF that is identifiable. That is, we as listeners can identify with it. The fourth purpose of the sermon introduction is to prepare for proposition in concept and terminology. To prepare for the proposition in concept and terminology. Now, if you think of why all of these things are important, it's, I think, kind of commonsensical, but let's just cover it. Why do we have importance attached to opening words in these opening moments? Because the opening words determine listener attention and speaker estimation. The opening words determine listener attention, but also their estimation of the speaker. That is, speaker estimation. What do I think of you it's typically determined in the opening moments. Just to detail those a little bit. Listener attention. It's ancient, going back to the time of the Romans, the phrase, well begun is half done. Well begun is half done. If I lose you at the beginning, <laughs> if you don't think this is important at the beginning, there are, you, know, you don't get that second chance to make that first impression. You know, it is, are you speaking compassionately and credibly to me? So, if you say that decision is not only determining listener attention, but are you speaking compassionately and credibly to me, that's speaker estimation. In your readings, I said to you uh, the study of D. Cleverly Ford. Now, this was done three decades ago in his book, The Ministry of the Word. He said the listener judgment of whether a speaker should be listened to was made in the first what? Do you remember? He said, uh, we say 30 seconds. He said, he said 60 seconds. That's right. So that was three decades ago, 60 seconds. Now, 30 years later, what would you say? You might say 30. You might say the first 15 seconds. I mean, it's an amazing thought that people are estimating very early on 
Are you saying something that seems to communicate care for me? And are you credible? If those things are being determined for the whole message within the first opening seconds, you have to know it's really important what we say in these opening moments, right? It is, by the way, why we speak particulars rather than generalities at first. If I'm just speaking generalities, the problem in the world today is sin. Oh, well, there's a new thought. You know, why did you bother to say that? Instead of, it was ten minutes past midnight, and she still wasn't home. And it was the third weekend in a row that she'd broken curfew. It is hard to raise teenagers in today's culture. Now, if you're writing an English essay, what would you have put first? It is hard to raise teenagers in today's culture. And then you would have begun doing the particulars under that. Preaching, we inverted. Okay, we put the particular first in order to say, this is important to you in particular. This has relevance immediately to life. And then I will develop the general principles out of that that will be addressed in the word. Yes, question? When, when you are developing sermons with people that you know very well over the years, do these same rules apply? Is it important to do uh, particulars rather than universals? And the answer is, I think when people begin to know you and love you, they forgive you tons. <laughs> um, if you say what's typically best, just because we're all oral listeners with preferences for what that means as oral listeners... It's good to be aware of the differences between a written message and a heard message. So these general principles will apply. But I need to say clearly, not only about this, but virtually everything I will say in this course. Rules are meant to be broken. If you know what the rule is, then you may know reasons to break it. And that becomes... A strategy decision. What best enables me to communicate to these people that I know? So sometimes I will do things that I might know in another context might not be as wise or good, but because I know these people and I know the effect of doing this thing, I'm actually going to seek to break this rule or standard that I'm aware of. The danger comes when you don't know the rule at all. And so you are doing things that you don't know the consequences of. And there are times, let's say, for instance, that I say, start with particulars and then move to generalities. What if it's something that you know is very, very sensitive in the congregation? Then my strategy may be, because I know all of that, I want to start with a generality and move to a particular, because I know how sensitive this subject is. But now I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. It, is, it isn't just kind of haphazard what I'm doing. I know what the effects of these choices are, so I'll make appropriate choices. So any, I, I will say we'll talk about delivery next time a little bit, but I will say I'm going to talk about general rules for delivery. But you must know something. You cannot do anything wrong as long as you have a purpose for doing it. Does that make sense? 
You cannot do anything wrong as long as you have an adequate purpose for doing it. So generally, I've, I've just kind of talked around your question to say these are things to know, to be guided by, and sometimes to vary from because you know what you're doing. Does that help at all? Okay. What opening words require? If they are so important for listener attention and speaker estimation, then there are just some logical consequences here. What opening words require? First, they require careful preparation. They require careful preparation because they are so important. Second, a gripping presentation. If people are, granted, if they know you, good question before, if they know you, they're not quite making so much of an estimation unless they're visitors or new people, perhaps lost people there. Uh, eye contact becomes very important in introductions. To bury your head in your notes and read introductions to people is usually saying, boy, I'm not going to listen to this person. You know, it, it shows lack of care for your listener, not only lack of preparation for your message. So gripping presentation usually means good eye contact and not reading word for word. Three, opening words require heart involvement. Heart involvement. It's the time to start reaching for hearts to say, I care about you. It's Typically, not the time to be argumentative. Now, there is time for argumentation in a a sermon, in a message. But the introduction is probably, most of the time, not the right time. The, the, The standard wording of homileticians is the introduction is the handshake of good intent. Sound sound good? This is the handshake. I'm reaching out to you and say, here, come with me. I've got things to tell you. So, as in your introduction, you're trying to say, here is good intention... And I'm trying to reach to you and pull you into this message with the handshake of good intent. This typically means that in addition to careful preparation, gripping presentation, and hard involvement, <coughs> number four, there is a strong lead sentence. There is a strong lead sentence. By that, you're often saying, if I were just to hear this opening line, would I be interested in this sermon? The words were too close for comfort. What's he going to talk about? What's that going to be about? Versus something like, the world's pleasures lead to dissatisfaction. Well, they both stand alone, which make, but which would make you want to hear the message more? The generality or the particular? The reason we're doing all this is just an awareness of how sermons typically develop. This was in your readings as well. Remember that emotional intensity graph? When you're saying, what, where, by the way, for most of the time, is the highest emotional intensity of a message? What do preachers usually try to have as the greatest emotional intensity of their message? The conclusion. That's right. Because at the conclusion, you are saying, this is what's so important. This is why we talk. This is why we gather today. You must listen to me now on the basis of everything that I said and give that final exhortation. So that is the conclusion and nothing typically has greater emotive intensity than the conclusion. But the second point of greatest emotive intensity usually is what? The introduction. Now, intensity is a strange word. It doesn't mean bombast. It doesn't mean loudness. It it doesn't mean, you know, great energy. Somehow you're saying, I am caring about this and I want you to care about it too. So we typically start out with some indication of compassion, and credibility, right? It's that engagement of the heart. 
emotive intensity. Now, typically after that, we move into some technical things. Here's my proposition. We begin to say, lay out some context of the passage, that sort of thing. And, and we, we typically kind of roll off of that. But then we'll start climbing the mountain again so that when we're done, we recognize a sermon kind of has this eventual movement to it. It starts high, begins to explain, but it's moving up the mountain toward greatest emotional intensity. We're building the case, to use kind of an argumentative or debater's language, but more than that, we are laying foundations upon which transformation can be based. Question. It is, uh, the, in the introduction of the Mickey Mantle story, I use words that would make the listener kind of go, what, what's he talking about, why is he? So you're creating question marks in the listener's mind. And is that a standard thing that happens in preaching? And the answer is yes. That is a standard. Now, it's, not, it's one strategy. It's not the only strategy. But one strategy is to create that sense of questioning. Another is create a sense of wonder. Another is create a sense of controversy. But, but you're, you know, there are various strategies to say, how do I make you have to listen to this biblical material? But certainly one way is to create those questions. Why is he talking about it? If that's not the answer, what's the other answer? Different what questions. Even to word things in a way that make you kind of go, what? What does that mean? As long as you're going to explain it later. So that you're, you're creating that interest. Sometimes one strategy is by raising questions. Yeah, good question. If we move on to say, if these are the, um, the importance of introductions, what are some standard types of sermon introductions? And uh, let's see, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I've got seven of these, and you could multiply it times ten. You know, I mean, there's so many variations of introductions. But, but here are some basic things that are kind of your, your basic tools to put in your toolbox to be aware of. One basic type of sermon introduction is called simple assertion. Simple assertion. This is the most basic type of sermon deduction, and it should not be demeaned. That is where you just simply say, here's what we're going to talk about today. It's very clear, very forthright. I want to talk to you today about how harbored anger can harden the softest heart. I want to talk to you today about how harbored anger can harden the softest heart. Very straightforward. Just here's the subject. Simple assertion. Some variation on that is startling statement. So number two, a startling statement. Get out of here and never come back. That is what Jesus said to the money changers when he drove them out of the temple. You get out of here and you never come back. You have no place in my father's house. Hear the startling statement? Who would say such a thing? Faith without works is alive and well and living in this church. Would you listen to this sermon? I mean, if you didn't ride him out of town on the rail first, would you listen to this sermon? Again, some variation on that is not startling statement, but provocative question. 
provocative question. Why would a loving God tolerate hell? Would you listen to that service sermon? Lots of people would. You ask a provocative question as the basis of getting the subject in view and also creating the I need to hear the answer to that. I recognize that problem. I need to hear the answer to that. Changing gears somewhat dramatically are catalog, catalog introductions. That's where we group similar items to form a single concept. Group similar items to form a single concept. Hammock under a shade tree, tall glass of iced tea, and Mozart on the breeze. Ah, that's contentment. Okay, just group some items, right, to create a single concept of what would contentment be, at least in worldly terms. But group things. To, to make that together. If you're a fan of the sound of music, oh, somebody do the, the song. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. What's happening? Just grouping things to, this would bring happiness to your life. Just It's a catalog approach. Here's one a little bit heavier. William Bennett. Kobe Bryant. William Jefferson Clinton, Martha Stewart, Enron executives, you and me, secure in the world, sinful before God. Ready to be judged. You hear the catalog? What groups all of these people? You and me included. We may think ourselves secure in the world. But being sinful before God, we shall be judged. By the way, when I'm judged, I want Christ in my place. (laughs) And that's the promise of the gospel, that he will be. But there will still be a judgment as all stand before the great throne. So we're grouping items to make a point. That's a catalog approach. Remember the longer one in your readings with Lewis Smedes where he just kind of grouped people in the audience and talked about their various problems? Again, it was longer, but it was still a catalog as he talked about people in their different situations and the need they all shared. Anecdotes. Another form of introduction that's standard is anecdote. Little boy went to his father and he said, Dad, what causes war? And the father looked up from his newspaper and he said, Well, suppose the United States and Great Britain were to have an argument. And the mother said, The United States and Great Britain wouldn't have an argument. The father said, Well, I know. It was just an example. Well, it wasn't a good example. I know I was just trying to make a point. Well, it wasn't a point that you could make that way. Never mind, said the boy. Now I know what causes war. 
Anecdotes often are the way to get humor to make a point in a message. And for just a moment, we need to talk about the strengths and the weaknesses of using humor in a message. Here's the basic idea. Humor serves you when you raise the hammer of emotional intensity in order to drive it more. You raise the hammer of emotional intensity in order to drive a point. Now, the reason you must hear that it's to drive a point and the humor is obviously being used to drive a point is what happens to listeners if the humor doesn't do that. Not so long ago, if you were trained in law or almost any business school, you were trained to start virtually every public address, every talk with a what? A joke. Start every talk with a joke. Because that little rubric from rhetoric long ago, the introduction is the handshake of good intent, was taught over and over and over again. And so people thought, if I just say something funny, it will draw people in, they will like the joke, they'll feel good about me, etc. And it's true. If you were to, and many researchers did this, if you were to graph the attention the emotional reason that people will listen to a message, they would say by using humor, the attention graph goes up very, very fast. Humor really draws people in and they listen. But, here's the important but. What they also begin to recognize is everyone was doing this. So all listeners knew what was going on. You're telling a joke at the beginning to get my attention and to draw me in and to make me feel good about either you or the situation I'm in. Therefore, what you are doing by telling the joke is you are trying to what me? Manipulate me. It happens so much in this culture that those who would research it would say just as fast as attention was aroused. So this is attention. Distrust. or we should say trust, I guess, trust went down just as fast because no one wants to be manipulated. Now, what is the way of pulling these two lines together to accomplish your point? It is recognizing that humor does work when people do not feel manipulated. So the way they keep from feeling manipulated is they recognize that what you told as a joke is tied to the subject. It has a purpose. It is when the humor appears not to have a purpose other than manipulating me that I will strongly distrust you. When the humor is tied to the point, in fact, I now even feel it in my heart with greater intensity because of the way that you use this. Now I actually appreciate the humor and recognize you did it with purpose for your subject not merely to manipulate my feelings. So these now, if you throw away humor from your message, believe me, you will be a very sour preacher. Did Jesus ever use humor? No question, Jesus used humor. You know, when he talked about you are willing to uh, judge your brother, and by that you'll take the splinter out of his eye, but ignore the what in your own, the log in your own eye, when he would talk about it's harder for a wealthy man to get to heaven than to go through, that a camel do what? Go through the eye of a needle. And then there's all kinds of exegetical reasons, explanations of what that needle is. There's no question that people still laughed when he said it. 
Okay? There was clearly something going on with the humor, but it had a point. Okay? And that's the issue. It must have a purpose that's clear. Question. Yes. Is there ever a time when you're preaching that it's so heavy that the humor lets people off the hook? And let's say it both ways. Yes. And that may be negative and it may be positive. All right. It may be that you can't deal personally with the intensity anymore. And so just to lighten them, you know, to lighten up, you back off of it by kind of laughing. You know, you know, if, if you do not accept my message then there are going to be great and horrible consequences for this church. <laughs> what, did, what did I just do? I just I had trouble saying this. I had trouble you're hearing because I've got to I've got to humor it to soften it somehow. But that may be very different than pastoral prudence that says this is so heavy for so long. If I don't lighten up a bit, they will not be able to hear me. And so I need the humor to do that. I. Uh, Deanne's here on the front row. Um, she and I were at a service somewhat recently in which there had been two churches that had a history that was sometimes not always positive. And so the, the pastor who at this service was dealing with it said, it's great to be here with this church. You know, we have been sister churches for a long time. And sometimes we've acted like sisters. Well, everyone laughed, but it meant he could go on with great authority and power because he'd kind of named the elephant in the room, enables to say, I'm, I'm not going to be intimidated by this. I can say it. You can laugh about it. So let's deal with it now and move on forward. And so that willingness, I think, at times can be a very powerful aspect of humor. I'm, I'm trying to warn you both ways, right? I'm trying to say humor has consequences if it doesn't have a purpose. There will be consequences of just being afraid of humor and never being willing to show your own goodness of heart in the pulpit as well. Humor can have a purpose and strong power as long as it has a purpose. And that's the thing to keep tied together. If it's just anecdote for humor's sake, I would caution you strongly against it. A couple of other notes about humor, and we'll just uh, deal with it a little bit and then move on. Who is the only person that you can make fun of in the pulpit? Yourself. Who is the only person you cannot pat on the back in the pulpit? Yourself. <laughs> Yourself. Uh, you know, you, you and I both sat in those you know, churches at times where the pastor will say something like, I and my wife have made a commitment that we will never go to sleep at night without having shared the gospel to at least one person every day. And you want to go. Well, good for you. You know, I mean, you, you just want to slap him, don't you? I mean, you know. You know, the, the idea of commending oneself. Now, if, now, sometimes there's difficulty that you want to say something positive happened and you did something positive. If you did something positive, though, who gets the credit? God must get the credit. The Lord enabled. So it's not saying you never did anything good, but it's always giving the credit to the Lord if you did. And if you say something positive about yourself, typically say, now I recognize this was not of me. And maybe even my high view of myself is not of God. 
I mean, somehow you have to come back across self-compliment. Now think of the other. How easy it is to create humor that is damaging to people and you don't even know it because it's just so prevalent in culture. It's just so out there. I remember I did it one time. I'd uh, used an illustration about a, a sheriff who was getting older and uh, he needed to qualify for his annual um, pistol target test to keep using his pistol. And so um, he went to take his test, but he had just gotten a new pair of trifocals. Now, for those of you who shoot, you know that this is really going to be a problem because you have to get the target in focus. At the same time, you've got to get the front sights of the gun in focus, and you've got to get the back sights of the gun in focus all at the same time. And this guy's got new trifocals, and so he, he ended up, you know, you know, kind of doing this like, like that. And finally, he said, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. And so he just let his instincts take over. He said, I know where that thing is. And he just fought, shot where his instincts told him it had to be. And the sermon I was preaching on is about Christians developing instincts about what is sinful. That at times they will not be able to identify the specific verse that pulls the sin into focus. But they have so long lived for the Lord that their instincts tell them when something is off base. Now, I thought it was a pretty good illustration. And then I shook people's hands at the door of the sanctuary later. And my favorite, one of my favorite people in the world, my senior elder, came up to me and shook my hand and then held it and said, Brian, I never thought I would hear you make fun of older people. What did I do? I didn't mean to, but I took advantage of other people's age in life in order to be funny. And it was not appreciated. Who's the only person that you can make fun of in the pulpit? Now, work with me here a little bit. Who are people that we typically make fun of in the pulpit? Because evangelical, suburban, middle-class culture accepts it. Who do we make fun of in our churches with impunity? Say again. We make fun of our own families. My wife, the other day, you should have seen what... What does everybody do when you mention your wife? They look right at her. How is she responding? How is she reacting? And how dare you make fun of your own spouse in front of everybody? So if you tell something that puts your spouse in a bad light, what must you do? Or even a compromising light. What must you do even as you're telling the story? Tell them that you've asked permission. You must say that. You must say, I have gotten my talk to my wife about this and she said I could. Don't assume that they know. Because you are communicating compassion. And if you will be willing even to bring your own spouse into embarrassment, who's going to go to you for counseling? They will laugh at the joke, by the way. They will laugh. They just will not trust you. Who else do we make fun of in our churches? Children. Who else do we make fun of? Politicians, particularly of which party? Well, it depends on what church you go to, right? You know what? It was so 
awful for me to meet an older woman in the basement of my church one time. And we were going down the hallway, and she simply stopped me and grabbed me by the elbows, and she said, Brian, when did our people determine to get so mean? Because we tell so many jokes about the president in this church, I cannot bring my own unsaved children here because they are not of the political party that is most appreciated in this church. Now, think about that. We just tell the joke. Everybody laughs. You know, we all agree this is somebody to make fun of. And as a result, unbelievers, people who do not agree with us politically, but certainly people who are not already part of the clan, see no reason to sit here. You just make fun of people that disagree with you. Who else do we make fun of? Other denominations, other churches. Again, it's so easy, so easy to do. And because we do it so commonly, we do not hear the offense of it to people who, again, not already part of the clan. But think of this. I speak, because of my position, in mainly PCA churches. And I go to churches that are quite large, some very historic in the PCA, and often that means because just... You know, you got some outside person there. They have joint Sunday school classes. So all the adults get together, sometimes the kids. And I will always ask the question, how many of you were raised in a Bible-believing Presbyterian church? Even in the most historic of the churches that I go to, if 15% of the people raise their hands, that's an exception. It's almost always 15% of the people or fewer now, if you're just telling willy-nilly jokes about other denominations, what do you know you are doing? You are just making fun of people and their families and their backgrounds willy-nilly, and they will laugh, but they will not like you, and they will not trust you. Racial and ethnic humor comes out in ways we do not intend, using dialects of other people. And the little old lady said this to me, you know, just by using a dialect other than my own. Describing somebody by their race who is doing a bad thing. And this great big old Indian came into the store and he said, now, now what did the fact that he's Native American have to do with the account? Or did he sound worse because you identified his race? You may not even recognize that you did that. But by identifying race to the subject, it is stereotyping in ways that you may never have intended. Who's the only person you can make fun of in the pulpit? Yourself. And you sometimes have to listen very carefully to recognize what you yourself are doing because of how commonly humor is used to demean others to elevate us. Now, having moved beyond that, other ways in which we sometimes use sermon introduction that was all on anecdotes is news or historical accounts. News or historical accounts told in contemporary terms. News or historical accounts told in contemporary terms. We will come back when we talk about illustrations, about how even if we're using historical accounts, we do not leave it 2,000 years ago. How do we tell those accounts in contemporary terms? But above all things that I have mentioned to you thus far, the most important and commonly used and on the midterm <laughs> type of introduction is this. The most common and most important are HIAs, human interest accounts, human interest accounts. 
A human interest account is a story of an ordinary or extraordinary person. Hear that? It's a story of an ordinary or an extraordinary person. In an ordinary or extraordinary situation, an ordinary or extraordinary person in an ordinary or extraordinary situation experiencing thoughts and emotions, experiencing thoughts and emotions with which ordinary people can identify. Experiencing thoughts and emotions with which ordinary people can identify. Is Mickey Mantle an ordinary or extraordinary person? Extraordinary. Is his life ordinary or extraordinary? It's extraordinary. But is a person who pursued the world's happiness all his life and came up empty, is that extraordinary? Very ordinary. And everybody can identify. So an ordinary, extraordinary person, ordinary, extraordinary situation, but with thoughts or emotions, an ordinary person can identify with. Listen, if Princess Di tells us anything, her life and end, how a nation was gripped by somebody that you would say, nobody could identify with that. No, here's a, a queen with a Cinderella story whose marriage goes bad, who's lived under the press and in the eye of the world and so forth. But what do we recognize? No matter what came her way, very unhappy. Life never gave her anything that made her happy enough. And it was, in a sense, that unhappiness with which so many people could identify that made them long to hear so much about her. Ordinary, extraordinary people and human interest account is the type of story that will over and over again pull people in and make them have to listen. If you think about what are marks of poor sermon introductions, if you begin to get a feel of the importance and even what goes into them, what marks poor sermon introductions, the first two are the most important that I will mention to you, the marks of poor sermon introductions. The first two are historical recap, historical recap, And number two, logical literary recap. Historical recap first. The preacher begins by saying, Now at this time in the life of Israel, they are 40 years out of the land of Egypt. And they are about to enter the promised land. They have been in the desert of sin. They have wandered to the negative and they have gone around the Moabite territory, but they're getting ready to go into the promised land where they will face a number of different people. There will be the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Gerizites, and some of these will be more... What are most people now doing? You know, you, you, you just heard, you know, the channels switch or else the switch turn off. They sat down, many of them thinking, I know the Bible was written... 2,000 to 4,000 years ago. But I'm sitting here because he's going to say something that applies to my life. And in the first 20 seconds, you convince them they are wrong. You're only going to say things that apply to thousands of years ago. 
Now, is all that information about history important to say in the sermon? Yes, it has its place. The introduction is not the place. Okay? It is very important information. Contextualization is very important. But this is not the place. Very similar to historical recap is logical literary recap. Now, here we are in the fifth chapter of Romans. And you may remember that over the last three weeks, what we've been covering is how this chapter has had its development to this point. In the first chapter of Romans, of course, we saw the consequences of the fall and how that affects all people. And in the second chapter, we recognize that that fall came through the life of Adam, who was affected by original sin, but also had consequences in his own life, so that redemption would be necessary. And in the third chapter, we recognize that redemption necessity applied to all people, because all have sinned. I and mean, what are people doing now? Again, you just heard the switches go off. Okay, now, is it important to give that logical literary uh, recap? Here's what's led up to Yes, we will be doing that. But it's not the place to begin. Often what is happening, and we will cover it next time, is people are confusing the sermon introduction with what we will call the Scripture introduction. The Scripture reading itself has an introduction which may have some brief contextualization so that people know what they're reading. But that is different than the sermon introduction that has this high obligation of arousing interest and communicating compassion. So the sermon introduction we're dealing with today, we will deal with the scripture introduction another time, but you typically recognize great errors occur in terms of arousal of interest, not errors of doctrine or fact, but in terms of just communication. Those errors occur when people start with historical recap, logical literary recap. Now, here's some quick additions to marks of poor sermon introductions, and you'll commonsensically recognize them all. A third mark of poor sermon introductions is a porch on a porch. A porch on a porch. You start with a story that leads to what? Another story. You know, the first one didn't really make, hit the mark, what you were trying to get to, and, but it did lead you to an idea that leads you to the next idea to get to what you want to get to. Okay, so how many introductions are there to a sermon? There's just one. <laughs> There's just one. So a porch on a porch. You already know the next one. Broad or simplistic assertions. Sermons that begin with broad or simplistic assertions. We should sin less. <laughs> Why? Might as well not have said it. Okay? It's too broad. It's, it, it's not going to be gripping. In fact, it's kind of, oh, there he goes again sort of thing. All right? Highly impassioned or argumentative beginnings. Highly impassioned or argumentative. I mean, I'm going to tease a little bit here, but I mean, just do your own feeling of what would happen to say, today I'm going to tell you the most important thing in the world. You must listen to me. Now, if I just start that way, what is everybody doing? Get out of my face. What are you doing? You know, you're kind of, it too much, too fast, too early. All right. Now, are there places to be highly impassioned? Of course. It's typically not right off the bat. more difficult for us because it involves so much pastoral prudence is using inappropriate cultural references. Using inappropriate cultural references. Very soon, you will discover the importance of arousing attention. And that will create a whole host of temptations for you 
because you will recognize there are easy ways to do it that are inappropriate pastorally. And one is to say things that are on the edge of acceptability. For instance, I began to quote or name scenes from a controversial recent movie that may have violent graphic content, sexually graphic content, or a lot of profanity in it. Now, it may be very applicable to what I'm saying. I may even kind of like the fact that it kind of sets people's teeth on edge because they're kind of saying, oh, so he's seeing that, huh? That's one possibility. It may be movies, it may be music, it may be books. You know, we are a pop culture dominated generation. And there are aspects of generation, region, maturity, all to take into effect in terms of what is appropriate for you to be speaking from the pulpit. For instance, profanity. Do the people in the pew not know profanity? They all know it. They're not expecting to hear it from their pastor. They're not expecting their children to be schooled on it from the pastor in the pulpit. Now, maybe private meetings, yes. Maybe you got, you know... I've certainly been in situations where single moms have asked me as a pastor, will you please come and talk to my son? He's in third grade. He's hearing all of these words. He's repeating a lot of these words. He's not listening to me. Will you as a male come in and talk to my son? Of course. And, and deal with some of those issues. But that's maybe different than other things. We, you, our culture is changing rapidly. Um, recognize that until the 1960s, so many older people in your church would be of this generation. The word pregnant could not be used on TV. I remember the very first time I used the word homosexual in the pulpit. And my wife was frightened because she thought I would lose my job. Simply because I had used the word. And that's only 20 years or so ago that I did that. Things moving very quickly in our culture. So there are things we will talk much more about when we are dealing with illustrations. But I just want you to be aware of the powerful temptation of, well, I really want them to listen to me. So I'm going to, to rouse their attention by saying this thing that you know to be on the edge. It is your obligation to exegete two things. You have to exegete the text. What else must you exegete? The people. And now we can say exactly what movies you can cite and what you can't, right? No. We're back to that pastoral prudence. God called you to the situation. He gave you judgment, understanding of people, and understanding of his word. With what he has given you, what are you able to say to communicate God's word? We can talk about struggles with anger. We can talk about struggles even with addictive problems that we've had. What's the one thing that our congregations typically will struggle to hear from us as a category of sin? Sexual sin. It just, now, other cultures are not this way. Some are more this way. But our culture very much struggles to hear from the pulpit the pastor's own struggle with past sexual sin. And the reason is because we know the recidivism is so very high. If you struggled in the past, they know you probably struggle in the present. And so for a pastor to deal with that particular subject in even the past is going to be a great 
difficulty without saying so many qualifications that you may not have time to say in a sermon. So I will typically say if you feel like you must talk about past sexual struggle, then the place is probably the men's retreat with a few people around rather than from the pulpit and uh, with everybody around. And, you know, and the kid goes home at lunch and says, Mommy, what did the pastor mean when he said, you know, is, is that the place? So it is, I love the terminology, it's not my own, redemptive transparency. Hear that? Redemptive transparency. If I never indicate as a pastor my struggle, then people say, you don't know what's going on in my life. You can't, I, I, I can't listen to what you say because I can't identify with you. On the other hand, if the way I am being transparent actually undermines my ability to share the gospel, then that is no longer redemptive transparency. That is selfish transparency. Now, what's the line? What, where, what phrase am I going to use again? Pastoral Holy Spirit's very important in the life of the pastor, isn't it? The Holy Spirit teaching us, convincing us, helping us think the thoughts after God so that pastoral prudence is a major part of our judgment as we move through life and say, what's appropriate for this people at this time and this place? Dan. Yes. Is, Dan is asking, is it dishonest in a human interest account to use people you know but change names and places? Again, when we get to illustration, we'll talk about it, but the, the answer is it is if you use the right words. For instance, if I say of someone, there was a man who came to my office a couple of years ago. I'll call his name Bill. What did I just say to people? His name is not Bill. Okay. That's what I just, just by using the phrase, I said, to protect this man, I am changing the name. So I'm telling a true account, but I'm going to say, just by using that phrase, I'll call his name Bill. What I just said was, that's not his real name, but I'm protecting him by not giving you his name. Now, integrity is in place, compassion is in place, everything's in place, just by learning some phrases like that, which we will learn. So um, sometimes it's even putting yourself in the third person. I know a man who... But it may be that you recognize if you would tell it about yourself, it would be seeming to be self-aggrandizing. So it's better to say, I know somebody else, you know, not somebody else. I know somebody who did something and never mention your own name as a way of keeping from praising yourself but still telling a true account. You know what we're going to do now? We're going very fast, right? Uh, I've missed one thing on the marks of poor sermon introductions after inappropriate cultural references. Just a hint, not using other scriptures in your sermon introduction than the scripture you're going to be preaching from. Not using other scriptures in the sermon introduction than the one you're going to be preaching from. Just think pragmatically for the second. They just opened their Bibles to Philippians 2. And in the sermon introduction, you'd say something like, and in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, now what's everybody going to do? Oh, I thought we were doing Philippians. I was in the wrong place. So by citing scripture references other than the one you're preaching about in the introduction, it just confuses people. Will we cite other scripture references in the sermon? Of course. But not in the introduction. It just confuses people. How do you make others have to listen to these introductions? Remember the old line? There are those you can listen to. There are those you can't listen to. And there are those that you must listen to. How do you become one of those in your introductions? 
First, by recognizing it is important to arouse attention. You already know that, but I'll just say it. You can just talk about little tales for little minds and make fun of this need, but don't you want people to create something interesting when you hear a sermon? So arousing attention, but number two, and even more important is, include an identifiable FCF. Including an identifiable FCF. Why do I have to listen to you? Have you identified a burden in my life that makes me recognize the Word of God will deal with me today in this message that you are preaching? To personalize the FCF, and when I say personalize, I don't mean personalize it for you as the speaker. I mean personalize it for the listener. I know what's going on in your life, and I'm telling you this today in such a way that you recognize this engages your life. I've identified a burden that you have, okay? and that is clear in the message. The marks of good sermon introductions, they have an effective start. I encourage you very much to think about that standalone standard. Will the opening sentence capture interest if it just stood alone? If you just heard that opening sentence, would it be an effective start? Second, efficient length. Efficient length. Introductions are not too long. If it's just typed out, standard margins, standard single spacing on a page, if it's two-thirds of a page long, you are right at the max. You, you, it's getting very long if it's two-thirds of a page. Most of the time, it's about a half page in length. About a half page in length, which means, just the way things break down, two minutes is a very long one. Two minutes is a very long one. Typical length, 90 seconds. Next, it bonds to Scripture. It bonds to Scripture. Somehow it tentatively points out that this text will address this concern. It tentatively points out that this text will address this concern. And the fourth, it flows into the proposition. The introduction flows into the proposition in what two ways? In concept and terminology. The concepts you've been talking about in that introduction are what the rest of the sermon will be about. So the proposition is about that concept and the key terms. The terminology is getting ready. So, to fill in the blanks there, the proposition is actually a summary of the key ideas in the introduction. It's a summary of the key ideas in the introduction that springboard us into the sermon. The introduction prepares for the proposition in concept and Terminology. I wish you could almost just uh, in your notes highlight, put neon signs around this next sentence. There should be no key terms. There should be no key terms in either clause. Can you at least underline either clause? There should be no key terms in either clause of the proposition that have not been mentioned in precisely the same terms in the introduction. And if you could underline precisely the same terms. Remember, I used the word satisfaction in the Mickey Mantle story, right? And then the proposition had the word satisfaction. I didn't switch them and talk about satisfaction in one place and fulfillment in the next place. Precisely the same terms were echoing because I'm getting the ear ready for what that proposition will be. Let's, uh, let's go to page five, okay? Page four. We'll come back to next time, but page five. 
here's what we are hoping to accomplish in our introductions. We are creating a chain. And we recognize that the introduction has the obligation of arousing attention, of introducing the subject, of creating an identifiable FCF. I used to say it becomes personal, but I struck that out just to make a point for you. Because when I said the FCF becomes personal, people always thought about, often thought, this applies to me personally as the speaker. But you're making it personal for whom? The listener. For the listener. Okay, so you create an identifiable FCF, bond to Scripture. Somehow you'll indicate this Scripture will apply, will deal with this issue, and then you prepare for the proposition in concept and terminology. We'll look at one here very quickly. This is the example that's in the back of your books. So as you're preparing your messages, you might look at this and think of these things. As my mother listened to Mary's brazen confession, her worst fears and suspicions were sadly confirmed. Mary had just declared that she was leaving her husband and pursuing a relationship with another man. For some time, my mother had been noticing her longtime friend Mary making frequent tips to visit the owner of a store across the street from her own business. Rumors were flying in the small town where they lived, and my mother had finally decided to find out what was going on. My mother's tentative questions were met with surprising candor by Mary. It's all right, she said. God has led me to this new relationship. And besides, I'll be much happier with him. My mother left their conversation dumbfounded. She was afraid for Mary. She knew that if Mary continued on her present course, that God would judge her for her sin. She knew that Mary needed to hear both the words of rebuke of God's word and the hope of grace in Jesus Christ from God's word. She wondered, how can I warn Mary that God judges sin and yet provide her with the eternal hope of biblical truth? How would you respond in such a situation? Here's one of those questions, right? My mother's account reminds us that opportunity to proclaim the truths of God's word can arise at any time, often in unexpected situations. In his providence, God continually places us in situation after situation where we can provide hope by carefully and faithfully applying the word of God. FCF about to come. But most of us struggle to speak up with clarity and conviction when God calls us to proclaim His truth despite our knowledge that God will judge? What will motivate us to overcome our hesitation and fears and enable us to speak the truth of God's Word in many different circumstances that we face? The Apostle Paul's charge in 2 Timothy... Do you hear the Scripture bond? The Apostle Paul's charge in 2 Timothy chapter 4 answers these very questions. Paul writes that because God will judge sin. Have you heard the language of judging sin? Because God will judge sin, we must proclaim His Word. Have you heard that language? Yes. In every situation. Have you even heard about every situation? I've heard that too. Key words of both clauses of the proposition have occurred in the introduction. Now, you've seen a couple in this class. You've got more examples in your readings. It is time to do one. So, here's your assignment for next time. It's at the bottom of the page. 
write a sermon introduction. If you've read ahead, it's not a scripture introduction. So write a sermon introduction and proposition on the text you previously outlined. This sermon introduction must be a human interest account. Okay, so not startling statement, not provocative question. It must be a human interest account and must directly lead into your proposition. Underline the key terms of both clauses of the proposition as they appear in your introduction. So up here I had things bold-faced, right? So that when you saw these key terms, they were already jumping out at you. I want you somehow to indicate to yourself the same thing. And for me, as a grader, you either underline or bold-face the key terms in the introduction that are going to be appearing in the proposition. So I'll be able just to kind of check. Did you do that? Did you get these words ready up here? And I'll be able to compare. Also, C, underline the FCF in your introduction. Have you identified the burden and made it applicable to the people you're speaking to? So identifiable FCF underline. And then note in the margin each of the other key components of a sermon introduction using the model on Christ-centered preaching, page 235 and 236, as a guide. That looks like this. So in addition to the things I just asked you to do, you'll see these things in that introduction. It will talk about arouse attention, introduce subject, key words are identified. There's an FCF, shows how it becomes personal, bonding to Scripture is indicated, and finally the proposition is indicated. That is already in your readings, okay? So if you're saying, what's he looking for? You've got the page numbers there to look it up in your readings and identify in the margins each of those components in addition to the things that I just said here. Item E, come to class prepared to present your introduction. We'll have some people just stand right up here and present their introductions. Who will it be? I'll tell you that day. So come prepared to present. All written introductions and propositions will be collected for grading during that class. So come prepared to turn them in and to present them. So you've got different examples. You've got an example in your notes. You've heard me give some examples. You've got an example in your book. And you've got the instructions here of what we're looking for. If you just look a little bit higher on page 5, you see that six-point criteria? When you come uh, the next day, the next class, I will put this criteria on the board. Those six things. And we will ask those six questions about the introductions that we hear. I will say, does it arouse attention? Did it introduce the subject? Did it prepare for the proposition, concept, and terminology? So you know that's precisely what you'll be evaluated for. So the instructions are here. Your question will be, I think, when do we get our papers back so we're doing the right thing? They should be in your boxes Monday. But you already know what you're talking about, right? You already have some idea what your proposition's key terms are. So I would encourage you to take the time over the weekend to start moving down that path. And there should be in your boxes Monday the outlines and propositions you've already turned in. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Looking for more resources? Access more than 1,000 downloadable articles, sermons, and more at resourcesforlifeonline.com. Search resources by keyword, author, or Bible reference. Grace-focused, Christ-centered resources, free to you resourcesforlifeonline.com.